You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. dive into our text this morning. John chapter 1, and we will read together the first two verses, and we'll open our time in prayer. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Let's bow together as we pray. Our Father, we can only quote the Apostle Paul and say, who is sufficient for these things? We ask that You would give to me clarity as I teach this morning. Give us all alertness of minds and hearts. We pray that our time spent in this ineffable passage, talking about this glorious and indescribable truth, may not be in vain, but that You might give us clarity through Your Word and help us to apprehend these great truths. Be with us now and be our teacher, we pray, and bless this time together in Your Word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin with a little bit of Bible trivia. I mentioned last week that no gospel writer mentions himself or claims himself as the author in any of the four gospels in our New Testament. We can deduce from clues within the text and from church history who the authors of the four gospels are, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But no gospel writer names himself as the author of a gospel. So here's a trivia question for you. There is one author of one of the gospel who names himself by name. In, one, in his gospel that he writes. Do you know who that gospel author is? Think about it for a second. You would be able to deduce them. It's not John, because John doesn't name himself by name. He simply refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, Luke wouldn't have been present during any of the events in his gospel, so it wasn't Luke. And Mark was not an apostle, and so he doesn't name himself. It's Matthew. Matthew mentions himself in Matthew chapter 9 when he describes Jesus coming up to his booth where he was collecting taxes and saying, follow me. And then he lists himself in Matthew chapter 10 when he lists all of the disciples and he names himself with the designation, the tax collector. He's listing the disciples as Matthew, the tax collector. So Matthew is the only author that names himself by name in his gospel, though he doesn't name himself as the author of the gospel. He just names himself as part of the narrative. And I just offer that to you because of my continuing quest to make you good at Bible trivia. Second, I, speaking of authorship, last week I also mentioned that John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I meant to say this last week, but I forgot all about it. And that is, what, why does John not just call himself John? Why does he refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? And there's a reason for that, and I think it is humility. It is because John does not want himself all over his gospel as the author so that is his way of very humbling, humbly stepping sort of out of the spotlight, as it were, and maintaining himself in the shadows of his book. It's clear who he is, but he doesn't name himself by name. So it's humility. And that you might say, well, the designation, the disciple whom Jesus loved, doesn't sound like a very humble way of deferring to yourself. It almost sounds like one is pounding his chest saying, I'm loved more than any of the other disciples. But that's not what John was intending. I think what John was intending was not to suggest that Jesus didn't love the other disciples or that Jesus didn't love the world or all of His sheep or all the Christians because He clearly says in His Gospel that Jesus did all of that, loved all of those people. 
But the reason John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, it is his way of saying, he loved me. It was a personal thing for John. Jesus loved me. It's like when Paul says he loved me and gave himself up for me. It's John's way of saying, I I still cannot get over the fact that this man loved even me. And so it was his way of reminding himself of that personal love that Jesus had for even him. That's why he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now let's dive into the text of John chapter 1, because we do want to make our way through quickly the book of John. This is only going to take us a few months to do. Uh, could you do me a favor? Look around at the people that are around you, up and down the aisles a little bit. Some of the people who you're seeing this morning will be with the Lord before we're done with the book of John. And that is, that is no joke. I just yesterday, Thomas Leo complained to me that we went through Jonah way too fast. So I said, well, we're going to slow way down for the book of John. We are going to take some of the theological sections of John slowly. We're going to plow deeply because it will be richly rewarding for us to do so. There are other passages in John that will go by uh, rather quickly, relatively speaking. I've actually been dreading this message in John chapter 1, not just this whole week, but I'll be honest with you, for 13 years. Ever since I started preaching, I knew that eventually I would preach through a gospel, and I knew that it would be the gospel of John. And there was always this mixed sense of anxiety and anticipation. Because on the one hand, I would think, oh, John, I can't wait to get into John and preach the gospel of John. And then at the same time, I would have this equal emotion that would say, I don't want to preach that first message, John 1.1. And and I dread it, not because I can't study it, I don't understand it, not because I can't articulate it, but I feel utterly insufficient to speak on John chapter 1, the first two verses. Who is sufficient for these things? And the answer to that is nobody. Nobody is sufficient for these things. Let me give you an illustration. How do you tackle an elephant? Do you, do you bring him to the ground by tackling a leg? And if so, which leg? Or do you pull him to the ground by, a ta- by his tail? Or a tusk? Or the trunk? Or do you just jump on its back and wrestle it to the ground? How do you tackle an elephant? You say there's really no way you can tackle an elephant, is it? Sometimes you just have to sort of walk around the elephant and look at it from all of these different angles to try and appreciate the magnificence of this beast. That's the way it is with John chapter 1, the first four verses. You just cannot tackle it. It it, it is beyond human comprehension, too ineffable for words. And I just have been praying all week long that I would be able to do this clearly, concisely, accurately, without diving off into something that, that makes it more confusing to you than it already is. This doctrine of the pre-existence of Jesus Christ and His total divinity. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was both with God and He was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's John chapter 1. So, without attempting to try and wrestle this elephant to the ground, we're just going to simply walk around it this morning, and I hope that this is more clear than it is confusing. Let me begin with a couple of general comments on the first 18 verses, which is known as John's prologue. You'll notice that the Gospel of John begins unlike Matthew, unlike Luke, and really unlike Mark, in that there's no genealogy. Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus back through from Abraham through David with the express purpose of showing that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was the legal descendant of David, 
And thus he was qualified to be Israel's Messiah and to sit on the throne of his father David and to rule. And that he was therefore the, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and the anticipation and expectation and hope of all of the Old Testament prophets. That he was the son of David, this man was. Luke, in an attempt to show that this Messiah, this king, was not just the son of David, but that he was also fully human, traces Jesus' genealogy not just back through David and through Abraham, but all the way back to Adam in an attempt to show that this Jesus was the Son of Man. And thus, He was able to stand in our stead and to die on the cross and to represent us. And then, in John, John is not attempting to show that Jesus is the Son of David or the Son of Man in general, but John is trying to show us that this Jesus, who is the Son of David and is the Son of Man, is also the Son of God and God the Son. And so in the first two verses, John dives right into it. Do you notice that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John doesn't wade into these waters. He doesn't sort of um, easily kind of come about it from one side or the other. He doesn't give us a chance to even get used to the temperature, but just in the clearest, most straightforward, most uh, brunt way possible, he pushes us off the cliff into the deepest theology that the human mind can possibly comprehend in the first two verses. That in the beginning was this one called the Word, and He was with God and He was God. That's His introduction. That's why I've been dreading this sermon. Now, how, do you, how do you wrap your arms around that? I mean, start with a genealogy or some sort of an introduction. Tell us a little bit about yourself. But He doesn't do any of that. He just dives right into this ineffable, inexpressible truth. There are themes in the first 18 verses of John that are mentioned throughout the Gospel, and I'm just going to mention them to you. Light, darkness, the true light, life, belief, the sovereignty of God in salvation, believing, becoming children of God, the doctrine of salvation, all of those are the pre-existence of Christ, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the personhood, the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the existence of the Father and the Son and how they related to each other before eternity. All of those doctrines are mentioned in the first 18 verses. And through the rest of the Gospel, John is going to expound upon those themes. Nearly every major theme that is mentioned in the rest of the Gospel is brought up or introduced in these first 18 verses. So take, take it home and this week, if you would, read the Gospel of John. Pay attention to what's in the first 18 verses and you will see those themes come up over and over and over again throughout the rest of the Gospel. So let's start with it. Without any kind of uh, outline which might make this intelligible to you, in the beginning was the Word. In the arche. The word arche is a Greek word that means beginning. It has sometimes been translated as source or origin. It also can mean um, rule or authority. And in the New Testament, it's translated in both of those ways. So it's an appropriate word for John to use, to, especially in the context with Jesus Christ, since verse 3 goes on to show that He is the source and the origin of all of God's creation. And He is also the ruler and the authority over all of God's creation, since by Him all things were made, things invisible and visible, thrones and dominions and principalities and powers. Everything that has been created was created by Him. That's verse 3 of this Gospel and Colossians chapter 1. And He is also currently upholding all things by the word of His power as He rules from heaven. So He is the source and origin of all of creation and He is the authority that rules over all of creation. 
So in the beginning, and the beginning that John is referring to here, probably brings back to your mind the beginning that you would find in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning that John has in mind. He is going all the way back purposefully to the creation of the whole world at creation. And there are themes mentioned in John 1 that are common in Genesis 1, like light and darkness and the Word of God being present in all of that. So it's a parallel passage in a sense in that John is taking us all the way back to the beginning of creation. And he says, in the beginning, at the moment of creation, was the Word. And the word was is a Greek word, imperfect tense, amy. It's the to be verb in the Greek. Like we use the word I am, he is, she is, they are. This is the form of the Greek word in, uh, form of the to be verb in the Greek. Amy. It's imperfect tense indicating that John is not talking about something that came into being at a specific time. He is not describing something that has a completed action. The idea is that which, the idea is this. In the beginning, the word continually was. Now, if John wanted to say that at some point in the beginning, the Word came into being, he would have used a different Greek word. Ginomai. In fact, he uses that same word three times in chapter 1. He uses it in verse 3 when he says, all things came into being through Him. Ginomai. What is he speaking of? All of creation. There was a time when all of creation did not exist. And it came into being. Ginomai. Verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through Him. That is, the world came into being, genomai, or existed through Him. And verse 12 says, we become children of God. Genomai describes something that at one time did not exist, then came into being, or was, and may even continue to exist. But John, in using two different words, both meaning to be, distinguishes between the Creator and the creation. He distinguishes between that which at one point did not exist, that is the world, and that which always existed, that is the Word. you understand the distinction? In the beginning, always continuing to be was the Word. Now, who is this Word? He tells us who the Word was down in verse 17. That is Jesus Christ. And all the way through the passage between John 1.1 and John 1.17, He gives us all of the attributes of this Word. He is light. He is life. He came, created the world. He existed apart from the world. He never had a beginning. He came into the world and He became flesh. He came to this world that did not know Him, though it was created by Him. And it was rejected by His own. This Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. And He is full of truth. He is full of grace. And He is full of glory. Then in verse 17, we finally get His name. This Word is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does John, excuse me, why does John use the term word? Sort of enigmatic to you and I, but not in John's day. It's a word that would have been familiar to Jews and to Greeks. The Greeks were familiar with this concept of the word, and they would speak of this in their philosophical circles. To the Greek, the word, the logos in the Greek, the logos was a rational principle, a logical order of things that was evident in creation. And for some Greek philosophers, they viewed the Word as having sort of a quasi-creative force to it. So they would look at the order, the structure, the intelligence, the design that is in creation, the logic, the rationale, 
the, the laws of physics, the laws of nature, and they would say, you know what? This looks like it has an underlying element to it. And they would refer to that as the Logos. And to them, the Logos was sort of an impersonal, semi-creative hand that sort of guided everything. It was a rational, logical principle. Now, John, listen, does not mean that when he says that Jesus was the Logos. John uses a Greek term and a Jewish term that was familiar to Greeks and Jews, but he has his own distinctly Christian meaning to it. The Jews were familiar with the idea of a Logos because the Jews would say, by the Word, the Logos of the Lord, the world was created. So the Jews used the term Logos to refer to the wisdom of God, the power of God, the creative, dynamic presence of God. They would use the Logos to refer to that. And John really has more of a Jewish idea in mind than a Greek idea in mind. But really, it's not either one of them. It is his own idea. And what does he mean? He calls Jesus the Word because Jesus is Himself the full manifestation and the full revelation of all that God is. Everything that can be known about God by us is present and manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the full revelation of the will of God, the nature of God, the grace of God, the truth of God, the person of God, the character of God, the goodness, the love, the justice. Everything about God is manifested in human flesh in the person of Christ. We speak of Word as being something that we use to communicate or to reveal something. Same thing with Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate communication of all that God is, all of God's nature, because not it doesn't mean that He was simply a manifestation of God, but He was God manifest. And there's a difference. Now since we're here, let me give you two things that John 1.1 1, 1 does not mean. By, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By Word, Logos, John does not mean simply the wisdom of God. As if to suggest that Jesus is simply a wise man who demonstrated perfectly the wisdom of God. That's not true. Jesus demonstrated perfectly the wisdom of God, not because He was a demonstration of the wisdom of God, but because He was God. And so when you encountered Jesus Christ, you saw perfect divine wisdom because you saw the perfect divine Son of God in human flesh. Nor does John mean by that that Jesus is merely an emanation of God. Some people have said, we use the term, we use words to put into concrete or object um, form what is subject or not concrete in our mind. We ha I have thoughts. I'm having thoughts right now that you cannot even understand unless I express them into words, which is what I'm trying to do. So I'm putting in a concrete form something that's in my mind. Some people say that's all Jesus did. He was just simply a concrete expression of all that was in God's mind. Now that's something you'd hear on Oprah or get from Deepak Chopra or get from Eckhart Tolle, but it's not biblical. And some people would suggest that Jesus is just as much an emanation of that divine mind as Buddha or as Muhammad or as any other great prophet or New Age guru or teacher from years past. And that God continually gives us these emanations of Himself. That's not true. Jesus Christ is not merely an expression of God's mind. He's God. He's God. He's different than Buddha. Different from Muhammad. Those men were not expressions of the divine mind. They were false teachers, false gods, and idols. The emanation, nor is Jesus an emanation of the divine mind. He is divine. That is, He is God in human flesh. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word, look at it, was God. Now when John says Jesus was with God, it's as important to understand what John is not saying as what he is saying. He says the Word, the Logos, was pros theos, that is, with God. How can somebody be God and be with God at the same time? Doesn't that boggle your mind a little bit? John is saying that the Logos was God. He was Theos. But at the same time, He's not all God. Because there's more to God than just the Son. So John distinguishes between the the person of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit by saying the Logos, though He was God, He was with God. And the word with means to accompany or to be with. But it also can be translated toward. And it carries the idea of having a relationship. So it's not just that the Logos existed alongside of God, but that He existed in relationship with God. And so John does not say that the Theos was with Theos, because then you would have two Theoses, two gods. But he does say that the Logos, the person of the Son, was with God. That is, He's not all of God, because you have the Father and the Spirit. So He was with them in relationship and accompanied them, and He existed in glory, co-eternal and co-equal with both the Spirit and the Father, but He was also God. So He was with God, and He was God. That's why we say we do not confuse the persons of the Trinity. By that little phrase, He was with God, John is careful to distinguish that though He is God, there is more to God than just Jesus. He is the perfect manifestation of God. But you also have the Father, and you have the Son, and this one, this Logos, existed in relationship with both the Father and the Spirit. That's right, I said Father and the Son. Father and the Spirit. And that this one, who is the Son, existed in relationship with the Father and the Spirit, though He was God. Now, your translation says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I'm not going to get into this any deeper than just to say this. You don't have a mistranslation. It should not read the word was a God. If you ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door and you've brought out, cracked out John 1.1, you'll notice that their translation has that one little indefinite article, A. Your Bible is not mistranslated. There's no reason to. There's no calling for. There's no justification whatsoever for adding the indefinite article, a God, and making it little g, other than the Jehovah's Witnesses want to get away from the reality and the very clear teaching that Jesus Christ is God. They cannot stand that teaching. To them, that is heresy. It's an addition of late Christianity, but it's not. There's no way you have, there's no way you can translate this other than what I've just read to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's it. No A. And if you want to get into Greek articles, you want to find out why the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that or translate it that and what's behind that, and how to refute it, you can talk to me afterwards, but I'm not going to go into that right now. Not only because of time, but because... Non-Trinitarians always make the claim that the Bible never, ever comes out and just says, Jesus is God. Yes, it does. That's it. Listen, if I were John and I were in first century... And I wanted to, in the Greek language, communicate the idea that there is a man who became God, who existed before creation, and he is fully God, but he exists with other persons who are also fully God. 
If I wanted to communicate that one idea, there is no better way to do it than to simply write this. This is the clearest, most straightforward, most accurate, most theologically precise way of putting the doctrine of the Trinity, the pre-existence of the Son, the deity of Christ, and His equality with the Father and the Spirit. This is the only way you could put it in the Greek. It could not be any clearer than this. So does the Bible come all right out and say that Jesus Christ is God? Yes. The Word was Theos. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is God. There's no other way of saying it. There's no clearer way of saying it than simply to express it that way. And John does this, and this blows my mind, John does this in 24 words. 24 Greek words. Is that economy of language or what? 18 of those 24 words, one syllable. The other six are two syllables. I do not even think I could give you my phone number in less than 24 words. That is simply, it it stuns the intellect. It does not get any better than that. That is the clearest, most concise, boldest declaration of the absolute, total deity of Jesus Christ that you could ever hope to find anywhere in the New Testament. And it's beautiful. Now those verses answer for us three heresies. Three heresies. These heresies have plagued Christianity for years since they were introduced in early 2nd century, 3rd century. And I'm just going to name them for you this morning. I'm not going to go into each one. But you're going to, as I describe the heresy, you're going to be able to see how John 1, 1 and 2 refutes the heresy. Heresies in the history of church always attack one of two truths. Almost almost 100% of the time. They either attack the person of Jesus Christ, that is, they do something with who He is, tampering with His humanity and His deity, His person, or they attack the work of Christ, that is, what He did at the cross. Uh, John 1, 1 and 2 refutes three early Christian heresies. Maybe you've heard of these. Maybe you haven't. And if you don't get these right now, don't worry about it. You'll have a chance to write these down because we'll be revisiting these throughout the book of John. The first heresy is Arianism. Arianism. Introduced early in the church, it was the belief that Jesus Christ is inferior to the Father, that there was a time when He did not exist, He was created by the Father, and then the Father used Him to create all other things. Arianism. That He is begotten in the sense that He was created. That He didn't always exist. And so He's inferior. He's not God. He would be a God. A little g. And modern day Arians would include Jehovah's Witnesses. They are modern day Arians. And by Arians, by the way, and I have to say this because we live in North Idaho, this has nothing to do with white supremacy, has nothing to do with any of the Arian nations. This predates all of that. There's no connection whatsoever. But you can see how John refutes that. The Word was God. And He always existed and continually existed without beginning at the moment of creation. Arianism. The second heresy is called Sabellianism. Sabellianism believes that there is not three persons, but one person. They confound the persons of the Trinity. And so there's not three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one person, listen, who manifests Himself three different ways. Or there are three modes to God's operation. In the Old Testament, the mode was as the Father. He manifested Himself as the Father. Then during the New Testament time, the time of Christ, He was manifesting Himself as the Son. And now He's manifesting Himself in the, as the Holy Spirit. So you have one person who is God, but three different modes. And that's why that's sometimes called modalism. That's Sabellianism, and it is a heresy. 
Modern day Sabellians include Oneness Pentecostals like Phillips, Craig, and Dean, and T.D. Jakes. Those are Oneness Pentecostals. They are modalists. They are Sabellians. They deny the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, and they are heretics. And I don't care how often KMBI plays their music, they're heretics. They're Sabellians. And they know it. They're not just slightly confused. They know that they are Sabellians. And you can see how John refutes that. John does not, John refutes that by saying the Word was with God. You cannot confuse the persons. We don't have one person manifesting himself in three different ways. We have one God who eternally exists as three separate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons. The third heresy is Socinianism. Socinianism. And Socinianism simply believes that Jesus is not divine. He was a man, a very divine-like man. He had divine qualities. He was godly man, but he wasn't God in human flesh. Well, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Logos was Theos. So he was God. Arianism, Sabellianism, and Socinianism, all three of them heresies, and you can see how John deals with those in the first two verses. This just has to blow our minds. J.C. Ryle, in his, in his book, uh, his book, Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of John. He says, In leaving this verse, it is useless to deny that there are deep mysteries in which a man has no mind to comprehend and no language to express. How there can be a plurality in unity and a union in plurality, three persons in the Trinity and one God in essence. How Christ can be at the same time in the Father as regards the unity of the essence and with the Father as regards the distinction of His person. These are matters far beyond our feeble understanding. And then he writes, it is rashness to search too far into it. Did you catch that? It's rashness. There comes a time when you discuss certain doctrines. As you approach the fog, you can go as far as the fog, and then you have to say, I can go this far and no further. I, I cannot, I can understand what John is saying, but I cannot understand what John is saying. I get what he's saying. I can articulate the doctrine. But how this is, these three pounds of gray matter, probably two with me, these two pounds of gray matter are not going to be able to fully comprehend that. It's just not going to happen. So Ryle writes, it is rashness to search too far into it. It is piety to believe it. It is eternal life to know it. And we can never have a full comprehension of it until we come to enjoy it. That's it. You, you can't fully grasp it until you enjoy that truth. I, I, I dreaded preaching on this not because I don't like these doctrines. They are precious to me beyond words. But you cannot fully grasp it or comprehend it ever. And you cannot really apprehend it and hold on to it until you already enjoy it by faith. And so we bow our knees before the revelation of this God, affirming what He has revealed about Himself. That this One who was the Word was not only distinct from the Father, He was with God, but He also was at the same time God. Fully divine. Let me offer to you two thoughts in conclusion. The first is this. This is the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. You cannot get this one wrong and still be saved. You cannot willingly, knowingly deny this 
mistake this, confuse this, and still be saved. If you do not have the right Jesus, then the Jesus you are trusting in is an idol. He does not exist, and He cannot save you. I was talking with a man who had attended this church for a while, and shortly after I had preached through this subject, and a couple months later we were talking about something entirely unrelated to this, and so I thought, well, I'll use an illustration of this. We're talking about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. I said, you don't have to choose between the two. They're both right. God is 100% sovereign, and man is 100% responsible for his actions and his deeds and his sin. And so I said, it's kind of like this. You heard me teach on this. We do not have to choose between believing that Jesus is man and believing that Jesus is God. He is both. He's 100% man. He's 100% God in the one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you don't have to choose between the two. And he said to me, well, I don't necessarily believe that. And with as much theological accuracy and astuteness and articulateness as I could, I said, huh? You don't believe that? And he said, no, I don't. I don't believe that Jesus is necessarily 100% God or that He's 100% man. I think He is some mixture of the two. Some hybrid of humanity and deity. And I said, that's heresy. If that's what you believe, it places you securely outside the Orthodox Christian faith. You cannot... And I'll say this clearly because I'll reiterate it through the Gospel and you will see Jesus say the same thing. You cannot and you will not be saved unless you believe that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh to pay the penalty for your sins. Any other Jesus is an idol. And to believe in any other Jesus is to make you an idolater. And you worship an idol. And your idol will not save you on the day of judgment. You will find that this Jesus is not some hybrid mixture of humanity and deity. He is 100% God. And He is 100% man. And any other Jesus in your mind, I'm warning you, is an idol. And turn from it. And bow your knees before the reality that this One who existed continually at the moment of creation was not only with the Father and the Spirit in all of His majesty and His glory, but He was God Himself. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And He is the only true God. So number one, this is a cardinal doctrine and to get it wrong is to lose your soul for all of eternity. And by the way, that's what I tell the Jehovah's Witnesses. You got this wrong and if you can be right about a lot of things, but if you're wrong about this, you are wrong enough to lose your soul for all of eternity. You will perish in everlasting flames because you have worshipped and served an idol and not the true God. Second, for us as believers, this is very comforting. And I'll tell you why. The one whom I trust to save me from my sin is none other than the eternal, infant, almighty God in human flesh. This is the one that we are bid to trust and to put our confidence in. I'm not told to trust in an emanation from God, a godly man, a spiritual man, an angel incarnate, some manifestation of an angel, some enigma. I am bid to trust for my eternal salvation, none other than the eternal God in human flesh. That is the one, the only one who is worthy of our confidence and our faith and our trust and our assurance. When I trust Christ, I can say, I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that He is able to keep me that which I have committed unto Him against that day. I know whom I have believed. It is Jehovah, the Almighty God in human flesh. And I'm trusting in Him. And He cannot, will not ever fail. And the only way I can ever perish 
is if Christ fails, and He cannot fail because He is God in human flesh, and there is nothing that can stay His hand, there is nothing that can separate me from Him, and there is nothing that can stand in the way of Him bringing me to eternal glory. Because He will not fail to bring to glory all those whom the Father has given to Him, John chapter 6, and He will raise them all up on the last day. None of them will be lost. The one we are bid to trust is none other than God in human flesh. And so we can place our confidence in Him. You and I and ourselves are great sinners. But in Christ we have a great Savior. Because our God took upon Himself human flesh and came here to die on a cross. Let's bow our heads together. Our Father, indeed, who is sufficient for these things? Our inadequacy to understand them, to fully comprehend them, we can never even express. We thank You for the revelation of what this is in Your Word. And I ask God that we would be willing by Your grace to bow the knee before it, to confess that this One, this Word, who became flesh, is our God. We worship You, not because we fully understand You, but because You have revealed enough of Yourself in the pages of Your Word for us to worship You in spirit and in truth. We thank You for this time. We ask God that these things would be enlightened. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.